Today we are continuing in our year-long look at the book of Ephesians. We have uh, kind of jumped in and out of the book of Ephesians uh, throughout the year. We started in, in a series and we worked through a couple of series of, of messages through Easter and did a few different things Easter and after a God Quest series where we looked at some just foundational questions about faith and who God is and who Christ is and the Bible and how do you know there's truth. And then we jumped back into Ephesians and then we worked on that a little bit through the beginning part of the summer. And we had a new series over the last three or four weeks that we looked at called Recharge as we looked at just kind of recharging our focus and our priorities and our relationships. And then last week, looking at our spirit and looking at the Holy Spirit. And so we're going to jump this week back into the book of Ephesians and we'll, we'll go several weeks here. We'll take another break and then we'll come back to Ephesians later in the fall to kind of finish out this book. But over the, 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 the months that we have been looking in the book of Ephesians, if you remember, and maybe if you're relatively new, you may not have been tracking with us, but the, the book of Ephesians is a letter. It's written by the Apostle Paul. He is in prison as he writes this letter. It's called Ephesians because the letter is addressed to a church, to a group of people in the city of Ephesus, which is a city there. And, and, and so he's writing this letter to a church that he helped establish. You can read about that in the book of Acts. He left that church, established leadership there, left. And now he is writing back to them to help them as they are establishing themselves. He's writing to help them understand some doctrinal truths about um, faith and truth and, 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 and life with God the Father. And, and that's really what's been happening in, in chapters 1, 2, and 3. Now, obviously, when Paul wrote the letter, he didn't write it in chapter and verse. He wrote a letter like you might write a letter or an email. And later, scholars came back and added the chapter numbers and the verses just to help us as we were reading to know where to jump in so that I didn't have to stand up this morning and go, if you'll look about two-thirds of the way through the book of Ephesians and find the word therefore, and you just have to search to find that. So we're in chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. You know, chapters 1, 2, and 3, what we learned is that this church in the city of Ephesus was struggling with some of the same things that were happening in other early churches in this day. And it was the idea of this. If you looked at the Old Testament, and you understand that that really was, <clears throat> was what was happening in the establishment of the relationship of God to man. That's really what the Old Testament is about. Jesus has not arrived on the scene. There is no new covenant, new relationship through the grace of Jesus Christ on the cross. What they have is they have a relationship with God through the law that God gave to Moses and to the children of Israel. And so you have that in the Old Testament. And all of those people, with very few exceptions that you read about in the Old Testament, are Jewish people. They are the Hebrew Jewish people chosen by God, God's covenant people. Then you have Jesus arrive on the scene in the New Testament and he lives for 33 years. He establishes his ministry. He pulls the disciples into himself. He teaches them. They get to watch all this crazy, miraculous, amazing stuff that he gets to do. Then he dies on the cross, is raised from the dead, ascends back to the father and leaves these disciples to help now take the message that Jesus preached and proclaimed while he was here and establish the early church, establish the church in that in that first century. And what happened is, Paul is, is one of those that's added a little bit later that you can read in the book of Acts, beginning really in chapters maybe 7, 8, 9, his conversion and then his eventual ministry. And what you have is that Paul establishes these churches, and so do many of the other disciples, apostles here. They establish these churches, and they're, they're establishing them among 
these Jewish people who have this heritage and lineage of covenant relationship with God. And now, because of the book of Acts and and God allowing this message to be uh, proclaimed to the Gentiles, the non-Jewish people of that day, you now have churches that have two groups of people existing in it. You have the Jews and the Gentiles that are attempting to coexist in a church. Now, it is very similar and probably carried the same stigma that you, some of you may have lived through it, others just maybe hearing about it or understanding what was happening historically. But the, the, when, when, when blacks and whites came together and you had civil rights and the, this segregation movement, when you had those things come, you know, those two groups of people coming together, very similar here in the establishment of this early church. You had two groups of culturally separate, diverse groups of people that came together in one church. And so in chapters 1, 2, and 3 of the book of Ephesians, Paul is writing to this church in Ephesus and helping them to understand that there is no difference between the two of them, the Jews and the Gentiles. He said to them from chapter 1 on that you are the same, you carry the same relationship with God through the grace of Jesus Christ, and you have the same future hope of an eternity with the Father because of Jesus Christ. And chapters 1, 2, and 3 really help to lay out the doctrine or the truth of the message of the gospel. We start here in chapter 4 today, beginning in verse 1, and we move from doctrine, and chapters 4, 5, and 6 really help us to move from doctrine to application. What that means is we're taking from knowing what is right to, to taking that knowledge and putting it into the way that we live. All right? So jump in with me if you got your Bibles. Uh, go to Ephesians chapter 4. If you don't have your Bibles, it'll be up on the screen. This is what it says, beginning in verse 1 of Ephesians 4. Therefore, I, a prisoner for serving the Lord, beg you to lead a life worthy of your calling, for you have been called by God. Always be humble and gentle, be patient with each other, making allowance for each other's faults because of your love. Make every effort to keep yourselves united in the spirit, binding yourselves together with peace, for there is one body and one spirit, just as you have been called to one glorious hope for the future. There is one Lord, one faith, one baptism, and one God and Father who is over all and in all, living through all. Now, this, this series of, of three messages here over the next few weeks is called One, really based on what's laid out here and what is coming in the next few verses. But I want, before we jump into anything else, to look at two key words in the first verse to help us understand kind of where we're going. This is foundational, okay? So, beginning... In verse 1, what we just read, the very first word, therefore. Therefore, I, a prisoner for serving the Lord. All right, the word therefore is used throughout Scripture, and it's a word that you and I use. But the word therefore really means this in a nutshell. Jeremy, translation here, okay? This is what the word therefore means. In response to all that you've seen and heard, therefore, fill in the blank. Okay? So, whatever you've seen Already, whatever you've heard, whatever you've been taught, whatever's been exposed to you, given to you, therefore, what? Something, right? In Matthew 28, 19, which is really for the church, it's called the Great Commission. Jesus has died on the cross. He has been raised from the dead and he's about to ascend back. He's about to go back to the Father. And he says to his disciples, and this is kind of the great commission of the church. He says to his disciples that are standing there, he says, Therefore go and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And lo, I'm with you always. All right, teaching them to obey all the commands that I've given you. All right, so the very first word of that passage, the very first word of the great commission, the commission that you and I as followers of God should be about with our lives is therefore. 
So Jesus is, is literally saying to the disciples, I'm leaving. So in response to everything that you've seen and heard of my life over the last three years, go and make disciples. In response to what you saw, in response to all the teachings, the miracles, now go and do something. Right here, Paul is saying, in response to the first three chapters, church at Ephesus, in response to the doctrine, the truth, the reality is that, that you guys are the same, Jews and Gentiles, and that you have a, 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 a secure foundation in God the Father. You've been given the grace of the Son, Jesus Christ, and you have a future and a hope because of what you've received. Therefore, and he, 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 there's a little parenthesis here, a comma, says, I'm a prisoner serving the Lord, therefore I'm telling you this. I beg you to lead a life worthy of the calling. Therefore, now soapbox for a second, pause this and just come back and say right here. One of the great tragedies of the present day Christian faith is that most of us, and I'll include myself in this, don't have enough therefore moments in our life. We know the truth. We, some of us have been raised in church or we've been exposed enough to it to know what is right. We can quote to you several scriptures or at least our translation of scriptures and, and, and biblical things and, and, and faith and morals. And we know about Jesus and who Jesus is. And we know kind of the, the gist of the story. But there is no therefore transition that takes that knowledge that we have and transitions us into some type of action. It doesn't, it doesn't translate from what we know to what we do. And so we live Monday through Saturday or sometimes even Sunday just taking in knowledge but not allowing that to change anything about who we are. And we said that chapters 1, 2, and 3 of Ephesians was really about doctrine. It was about truth. It was Paul teaching these people and maybe reteaching what he had already taught them when he was there. And then he's saying, therefore, in response to what you know, can you just start living this? I established this church, we did this thing, and now you're kind of fighting again, and you're, you're in error in your doctrine, you're in error in the way that you live, and you're not living among your, your people in the city of Ephesus in a way that speaks to them about what, what chapters 1, 2, and 3 is about. That God is our hope, that grace is available to everyone, and we all have a future. Therefore, I beg you, to live a life worthy of your calling. The next word I want us to look at is right there again in that first sentence. And Paul is really using it to help describe why he's in prison. But he says, therefore, I, a prisoner for serving the Lord. The word Lord right here is, is another word that, that is utilized in this book. That is, it's not just an arbitrary word. And it's not just a random word that he would use here to talk about God. The, the word Lord is used in the book of Ephesians 26 times. But interestingly, it's used 20 of those 26 times beginning right here where we're starting in chapter 4 through the end of this book. The first part of this book, again, about doctrine, when, when referring to God or especially referring to the Son, Jesus Christ, the, the word Christ is used to, to describe Him. Why? Because Christ is representative of the salvation work on the cross. So we're done with the doctrine part as it relates to what he's expressing to these people. So we're not necessarily dealing with the salvation message and how you are saved. Now he's going to Lord. He's transitioning that to say, all right, we've got the Savior part identified as it relates to how that happens. And now I, a prisoner for serving the Lord, the Lord of my life, leading, guiding, directing me. 
If you were here last week, we talked about how the Spirit controls us. We looked at Galatians chapter 5. We, we looked at several other passages that talk about the Holy Spirit of God and how the Holy Spirit, when we give control of our lives to the Spirit of God, that it shapes the fruit of our lives, how we live and what people see in and through us. And so through the rest of this book, what you're going to see here is a lot of references to Lord because it's not now just about you knowing how you should be or how you can be saved. Now it's understanding that that salvation work of Christ on the cross must affect the way that you live every day. So we've got therefore, we've got Lord, and then after he does all this, Paul jumps into talking to us about how we should live in community with one another. And this is where we're going to spend the rest of our time today. Community, relationship, group dynamics, group relationships. And remember, again, I'm not trying to repeat myself. Remember, as he's talking about this, he's writing it to a group of people in a church, a relatively new church, much like us in this room today. So as we, as we kind of listen again to what was read here and what, what was written, I want us to think through our context. He jumps into to talking to us about how we can live in community. So he says, you've been called by God. Verse 2, be humble and gentle. Humble and gentle. I ran across this quote as it relates to humility. It's in reference to this passage. The author is unknown as best I can tell. It says the first step towards unity the, the, the idea of community and unity that we can have with one another. The first step towards unity is humility. Without this, there will be no meekness, no patience, or forbearance. We'll get to all those things in a minute. And without these things, meekness, patience, and forbearance, there can be no unity. Now, please understand that when we get to this idea here, we're not saying uniformity. We're not saying everybody has to be the same, think the same not have any disagreements. We're going to get that in a minute. But if we approach one another at the very beginning with a humble spirit, humble, gentle spirit, it shapes the entire dynamic. It, 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 it shapes how we talk to one another. It shapes how we interact with one another. So it says, be humble and gentle. The next part says, be patient with each other. That's a little difficult sometimes. Making allowance... For each other's faults because of your love. Now, when you talk about patience, sometimes, and I'm going to tell on myself here, maybe you're not like this. Sometimes I am more patient with strangers than I am with those closest to me. I'm more patient with the guy that I don't know from Adam who does something dumb that inconveniences me. I'm like, oh, don't worry about it. It's okay. But someone close to me does that, and I'm like, what are you doing? You're an idiot. No, I don't say that out loud. But, but I mean, we're, we're more patient with others than we are sometimes with those that are closest to us, our family, our friends, people in the church that we know maybe. So we be, it says here to be patient with each other. And listen to this, making allowance for each other's faults because of your love. And that one hurts. We don't live this out most of the time. Making allowance for each other's faults? No, we're pointing out their faults. Right? I, I heard this this week, and I thought it was one of the greatest things. I'm a, I'm a preacher, so maybe I'm the only one that will think this is funny. But a, a guy that I was listening to said, you know, when we look at ourselves, we want the New Testament gospel. But when we look at others, we, we kind of pin them with the Old Testament gospel. Right? Because when I look at me and I see my imperfections, I'm like, thank you, God, for grace. But I look at you and I'm like, judgment, law, you are guilty. 
right? I mean, this, this is how we treat one another. We want grace, 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 grace. How could you do that? I mean, how could you even think to do that to me or to these other? We, we look at them with judgment. But it says right here, making allowance for each other's fault. Why? Because of our love for them. I want to jump out of this passage. We're going to come back in a second. And I want you to go to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. If you flip to the left, it's a book to the left. It's two, three books that way. So you're going to get to Galatians, then you're going to get to 2 Corinthians, then you get to 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Many of you know this. You could quote it. Some of you used it in your, in your wedding vows, maybe. More difficult to live than to say in a wedding vow. 1 Corinthians 13, beginning in verse 4. This is what it says. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Now, I want you to think about this the next time you tell someone you love them. Love is patient and kind. It doesn't keep record of wrongs. I mean, you're talking about Paul is saying here to this church at Ephesus. He's saying to this group of people, very much like me and you today. When we talk about the establishment of community among us as a group, we talk about family relationships and new relationships and life groups, which we're going to talk about in a minute. You're talking about the idea that he's saying, listen, you've got to make allowance. You've got to forbear, depending on what translation you have. You have to have forbearance here for other people's faults. Why? Because you say that you love them. You're connected to one another in relationship. So love is patient and love is kind. So you've got to make allowance for each other's faults because you are patient and kind and you don't keep record of wrongs and you don't envy. You don't delight when they mess up. You don't delight when something goes wrong in their life. You delight in the truth. You always protect, always trust, always hope, always persevere because of that love. That's a, that's a big deal when you start talking about loving one another. Community. I want you, before we get any further, start thinking about your relationships, the relationships that you have in your life. Do you approach those relationships in humility and gentleness? Are you patient with one another? Are, are, you, are you accepting? And I'm not talking about not calling out sin. We'll get to that in a minute. But I'm talking about like, because I love you, I am not throwing daggers at you when you make a mistake. I'm extending the same grace to you that I want for myself. I understand that we are both in this thing together. And so we are forbearing or accommodating or make allowances for that. Let's jump back into Ephesians chapter 4. Verses 4 through 6. This is kind of the second part of this passage. For there is one body and one spirit... Just as you have been called to one glorious hope for the future. There's one Lord, one faith, one baptism, and one God and Father who is over all and in all. Now, this is just a reminder. Because if, if Paul understood what I kind of understand as I'm saying these things about relationships, some of us, and I'm guilty of this, as I read through this, I think, man, that's impossible. I can't do that in all of my relationships. And so what Paul does is he comes back to the doctrine. He just reminds us a little bit of what we've already spent time on. 
He says, remember, there's one body, one spirit, one glorious hope for the future. He's reminding them that they're all the same. The body is the collective group together, the church. You can look at that in 1 Corinthians 12. It talks about that the body is made up of many parts. We're going to deal with this next week. Looking at what each of us bring to the table in relationship with one another and collectively for the body, for the church. There's one spirit, the Holy Spirit, that is uniting all of us together for a common purpose and that we all have a glorious hope for the future. So he's reminding of that. He says there's one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father. Now let's look at church history just for a second. Some of you just started snoozing when you heard the word history. It's in the past. Let's move on, right? Acts chapter 2 is really the day that the church was established. I mean, Jesus had been here and there was a covenant relationship. But as it relates to the New Testament church, we kind of signify that that started at Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2 is where we see the Holy Spirit come to earth. We see the, the day of Pentecost. Maybe you've heard that phrase before. And what you had in the upper room there, there was literally a room where some, a group of people, about 120, had gathered together. And they were waiting there, praying and seeking for the Spirit of God that Jesus had told them would come. And, and, the, and, and the Bible says that these amazing things happen. I mean, it says that cloven tongues of fire descended and they, they saw that the fire and the power and the Spirit of God. And it says that the Holy Spirit came on each of them and they began to speak in other tongues. They spilled out into the street and it just so happened, if you believe in coincidence, if not, the sovereignty of God, that every nation of the world was represented in Jerusalem at that time because of the feast that they were a part of. And all these people are there out on the streets. And as these 120 come out of the room onto the street, speaking in other tongues, they are proclaiming the message of the gospel. And they're, they're, they're saying things in the languages of the known world that these people are standing in front of them. They speak that. They speak that. Now, so just for clarity's sake here, it would be as if I stepped up today and started speaking Spanish. I don't speak Spanish. Okay. My Spanish is limited to a Mexican menu. That's all I say. But if I were to step up today and start talking to you and proclaiming the gospel message in Spanish, the word Jesus would be in there somewhere. That's about all I know. Okay, but you would know it was a supernatural work of God. And anybody in the room that speaks Spanish fluently, you would look at someone and go, man, I didn't I didn't know Jeremy spoke Spanish. Guess what? Jeremy doesn't speak Spanish. But in Acts chapter 2, what was happening is the Spirit of God was speaking through these people and every language that was spoken there on the streets by those people, they were hearing their language spoken to them. And, and Peter steps up, one of the disciples. He's the disciple that had kind of disowned Jesus as he was going to the cross. And Peter steps up and begins to actually preach the salvation message of God through Jesus Christ says that that day 3,000 were added to the church. And then these people that had heard the message of the gospel took it back to their homes, took it back to the places that they lived, that they had come to Jerusalem from, and they, they took it back with them. And so the early church is established. And here's the amazing thing about it, okay? Acts chapter 2, the beginning of the church, the first day, it would have been impossible for anybody standing there observing that not to think that, man, there's such a unity. There's, there's a connectedness here between the gospel message and all the people that heard it. And then all these people went back home and they started interpreting it for themselves and teaching it to one another and trying to figure out what it meant. And as they did, they began to divide. 
They began to split up what they thought Jesus actually meant. And they began to interpret for themselves what they kind of thought the gospel was actually about. And Paul and others like him, but especially in the writings of Paul that we have, he writes back to these churches that have been established and he continues to remind them of this very simple truth. You are one because there's one father. There's one faith. There's one baptism, which is the symbolic gesture that says, I have accepted faith in Christ. I have been saved. I've received the grace and mercy of God. And he's saying right here, listen, there is one God, one Father. He takes these people that are continuing to divide over little tiny theological differences. And he tries to pull them back together to understand that there is one gospel. Now, we are guilty of this today. You look at our lives and you see that what was a unifying piece somewhere in our past, somehow after that we began to divide over really silly things if we look back at it. Maybe you have relationships that you used to be a part of. And somewhere in your past, somewhere back there, There was something said or something done or something that happened and it just caused this little tiny rift in the relationship. And you began going your separate ways and now you can't even figure out how to cross that divide to get back into relationship with one another. Because there was at one point this oneness in the relationship and now it's divided. We look at churches. We're guilty of this. We are a part of a denomination Our churches. Look at all the denominations in the world. And you look at the idea that most of them, not all of them, most of them, including our own denomination, have split with other groups of people over really little inconsequential things as it relates to the fullness of the gospel. And now you have this division that exists between churches. And and I think if if Paul were here today, and since he's not, I'll take his place. That's silly. There's one faith. One baptism, one God, one father over all, in all, through all. Doesn't mean that there are not serious dividing lines sometimes when you come to faith. Not every denomination is the same. Not every faith is the same. I would not contend that for anything. But I do say that there are some. Some of our brothers and sisters in other churches, other denominations, other groups of people, coalitions of faith. That were separated from them by name because we disagreed at some point in our past over something very little. And most of us don't even know what the difference was. Marriages. Have been torn apart. Because of something little. Now there's division. And here's what this looks like. We have two hands. All right, I have two hands. Maybe not everybody has two hands. I have two hands. And there are some things that I will absolutely fight for. I'll contend for these things. I will close my fist around these truths because I say these are non-negotiables in my life. My faith me as a person, for my family, whatever. I'll I'll fight for these things. I will contend for these things. There are other things. They're kind of open-fisted things. I mean, I can contextualize these a little bit. 
they're negotiable. Where I live, which house I live in, what school my kids go to, certain aspects of faith maybe are in this. Please hear what I'm not, don't hear what I'm not saying. Hear what I am saying here. There are things I will fight for. But there's other things in life that if I'm in community with you, they're not things I'm going to fight with you about. Why? Because I'm going to approach you with humility and gentleness and patience. And if we're going to be in community together, then we come together understanding that there may be divisions, there may be things we don't agree on, but there is one Father. One faith, one baptism, one gospel message. And the message is this, we are all sinners. And Jesus came to the earth, he lived, he died on a cross for my sins and extended to me that which I did not deserve, grace and mercy. And I can choose to believe in him. So let's look at community. What does that look like in the church? What does that look like? I mean, it looks like a lot of things probably. It looks like relationships that develop where I care for you. I don't just pass you in the hallway. I don't just pat you on the back or shake your hand. I don't just see you only on Sundays maybe. I don't just think about you only on Sundays. But I care for you. I look at the establishment of these early churches and I see, man, they, they, they cared for one another. They took care of one another. I see in our culture today that there is such a longing for community and deep, meaningful relationship. And because it's a lot of work to get into that, we replace it with superficial, fake status updates and meaningless conversation because we can't get hurt there. Community is what we strive for. Paul said, I, I challenge you, I urge you, I beseech you in response to all that you've seen and heard to live a life worthy of the calling. You've been called by God. And then the very next thing he jumps into is relationships. Be humble and gentle with one another. Be at peace, united by the Spirit of God. Be patient with one another, making allowance for each other's wrongdoings because you love each other. The primary way that we do that through the church is our life groups. Now, I, I'm not going to lie to you and tell you that the first day you show up at a life group, you're going to feel this kind of relationship. It's probably going to be like the first day of seventh grade. A little awkward. You may sit by yourself for a while. You don't know what to do. You don't know where to go. But like our desire is to create meaningful relationships and community in smaller settings than this. It's very difficult in a room like this to have authentic community with a lot of people. I mean, I try to give you guys like 30 seconds to shake hands. Most of you take two handshakes and sit down, right? I mean, it's just, it's difficult. And I know like even a handshake, you're not gonna be like, hey, um, here's my biggest struggle this week. I cheated on my wife. I mean, I don't know like what you're going to say in that moment. I didn't, by the way. But like, that's going to make my wife very uncomfortable. Um, I, I don't know what we're expecting in that, but just maybe just to cross the aisles and to fellowship with one another and to, to say, hey, this is not just about you coming and sitting in a seat and staring at the stage for an hour or more. This is this collective corporate group dynamic that says, hey, we are here seeking God and his presence together so that when we leave here, 
still together we can pursue God with all of our hearts. I'm in a life group. I love it. I really do. Some of them are sitting in this room this morning. We have a lot of fun in our life groups. Some of the most meaningful time as a part of our life group, and we've been meeting now for several months, is, is when we're not even in the group. We're not even, like, meeting. We just text each other or call or we see each other. We're here at church and we're talking about something that's going on or I'm praying for. I know you got this thing coming. Because we're beginning to develop this kind of deep, meaningful community that I'm talking about. And I desire that for everybody in the room. I do. When you leave today and you walk out the doors, there is a next steps blue tent. It says next steps underneath the blue tent. A bunch of our life group leaders will be standing there. Walk up, talk to them, see how you can get plugged in. All of our groups are relaunching, restarting, starting back up here in the next week or two, couple weeks. You can jump in right now. It's fresh start. We've got new groups. We need new groups. If you're saying, hey, I'd like to be trained to be a life group leader, go by the tent. We can sign you up, get you started. Because we want to create a place where there can be this type of community for the people that desire it. 82% of people that attend evangelical churches, which includes us, say that they're lonely. 82% of people that say, I am corporately in some setting at least once a week with other people who say they love God like I love God and I am very lonely. Here's what I would say to that. Then 100% of us may have missed the point of the gospel. Because if there are people among us who are lonely, we may not know that. But I want to pursue community, not superficial relationship, but deep, meaningful community with other people. I want to ask the band to come. I stood in my neighbor's driveway last night. And we were standing there talking. The kids were riding bikes and throwing football and hanging out. And some kids were going to the pool with, with some of the parents. And, and I was standing there with, with my neighbor and some other guys on the street there that live on our street. And I was listening to the conversation and I was taking part in the conversation. One of the guys was really seeking advice and wisdom from the other guys standing there in the group. Best I can tell, and this may be a wrong assumption, just based on our conversations, I'm the only believer in that group. And a thought occurred to me this morning. Those guys are seeking the same thing I'm seeking. They're seeking, you know, just relationship with others that care about them. They're seeking wisdom and advice from someone. They're seeking a shoulder to lean on. They're seeking someone, as Scripture tells us, who will... Laugh with them and cry with them and mourn with those that mourn. They're looking for relationship. We don't have the corner market here on relationships. But I believe with all of my heart that the relationships that are built on a foundation of faith and hope and trust in God the Father. That exists with a mutual understanding of the grace of Jesus Christ. Where we come to one another with patience and gentleness and kindness and humility, when we're making allowance for one another's, one another's mistakes because of our love for one another, I believe those relationships are contagious. I believe that those relationships are life-altering. 
maybe life groups are not the answer for you. I think it's, I think it's a great place to start. But my challenge for you today is that you don't stay in the 82% or you don't allow yourself to get there. That you don't think that you're an island unto yourself or that you're cool just to show up here and listen and, and watch. And, but that you are pursuing community with one another. We want to help every way that we can and we may not get it right. You may show up at your first life group and be like, oh man, this is not for me. That's all right. We'll try you in another group and we'll tell the other people that that night didn't work for you. We will not tell them you didn't like them. I mean, we'll, it's fine. We'll put you in a different group. We'll, we'll try until we find a group. And if we can't find a group, we're going to help you start a group. Because we want you to have a place where you can connect in meaningful, deep ways with other people. But if life groups is not the answer for you, that's okay. That's just a program. It's just a ministry that we offer. You know what the win is? The win is not twice a month on Saturdays. The win is not every other Thursday or breakfast with a group. The win is that you are not in this relationship with Christ on your own. That the enemy never gets you to a place where you think that nobody understands what you're going through. Nobody can relate to you. Nobody understands what's, what's happening in your life. And you, have, you don't think you have anybody to turn to. The win is that when you're going through that, when the enemy's fighting you really hard, when you're having a bad week, when you're having struggles, that you know where to go. You just lean into one of these existing relationships that you're a part of. Pursue community. And do it all under the Father. Don't seek community elsewhere. Find the Father and pursue others there. Pursue community. I want to pray. God, I pray for every person that's sitting in this room. I pray for any of the 82% of a statistic that is reality in this room. People that attend here, maybe this is their first time, maybe they've attended here for a while. They're lonely. They just don't feel like they have relationship with others that they can turn to. God, I pray right now in this moment that as, as I'm talking, God, they're seeking you and that they understand that there is an active part of them that must be seeking community. Maybe, maybe life groups make them so uncomfortable even thinking about that, but they're going to start there. It may, it may branch out into something else, but they're going to start there because there's an easy next step today. And they're going to pursue community through the group dynamics that we offer here at this church. They understand they're not signing up for the rest of their life. They're, they're not signing their life away. They're just pursuing community. They're pursuing relationship. God, today, would we just look to you, the Father, the one Father, who is in all, over all, through all, and understand that there are some things that have divided us that don't matter. And God, for some of us, when we leave this place, our response is to go and be peacemakers. With someone in our life where unity does not exist, 
We're going to approach them with humility and gentleness and peace. We're not going to throw Old Testament at them when we are expecting New Testament. We're going to come with full grace. We're going to attempt to create unity in relationships. Help us to pursue community with others. To strengthen us as we pursue you. In Jesus' name we pray.